Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky, Alex's name is Alex, Simone's name is Simone, and this week we are talking about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Thank you for having us. I'm very excited to talk about this movie today. Yeah, I I am also very excited to talk about this movie today. I saw it at the lovely Skyline Drive-In Theater exactly a week ago, and I had a real fun time. And I'm excited to chat about it. Yeah, I feel like at first, like like when we decided on it, I was I was a little iffy on how it fits into like, you know, the premise of the show because it's not really a polarizing movie. And my thought initially was that I can can bring some controversy into it. Um, but in light of today's news, I I feel like it's a little more fitting to talk about it, uh, which we'll get into. As always, I have my notes on the history uh but just to get started you were talking about simone how you saw it at the drive-in um alex what was your experience seeing this yeah so i right when i got home from college at the beginning of may i knew that a friend of mine's birthday was coming up so i for their birthday present i took them out to see the movie we went on thursday so like technically one of those like early premiere things at this very expensive theater near my house um and i got like the special tickets for the theater with the better screen and the better sound i mean i don't have anything to compare it to because i hadn't been in the theater before and i i'd only seen the film once at this point um 10 minutes into our screening so like still during the prologue it froze and the movie froze and then it started skipping backwards like 30 seconds at a time or something like that and then the movie like stopped for another 10 minutes and then they restarted it and it went all the way through smoothly the second time which was probably for the best because the amount of people who came into the theater late was i think the how many people were in the theater doubled in like the 15 minutes it took for the film to freeze go backwards and then start again but uh i had a great time actually um simone got me a shirt a while ago that's like the spider-man symbol but with like a non-binary flag colored gradient on it and i wore the shirt to go see the movie because it was the only merch i had um but i had a really great time i got to do it with a good friend so that was my experience very nice yeah for me um i went and saw it opening week uh not that weekend because it was i mean i i don't like seeing blockbusters on opening weekend but it was uh it was pride weekend first of all uh and so i did go to pride that weekend and then i went to a different movie i went to sanctuary uh with margaret qualley and christopher abbott um which was pretty good and then yeah like middle of that week i went to the the cinemark by me and it wasn't too crowded which was nice that there was a, still a good crowd there people who were engaged um and i still had like you know a couple seats to myself which is <laughs> which is what i prefer um but but yeah, I I, rem- I think when I saw Spider-Man No Way Home in the theater, I was really uh, upset with the audience for a lot of it. I just I just felt like that was a you know just just quintessential kind of annoying audience experience. You were just shouting out everything they recognized on screen. Um, this was a much better experience. People were laughing. People were engaged. People were you know cheering um so yeah that it was a good theatrical experience for me 
um, but not a, not a, not as eventful, I guess. So to get into the history, the the concept of a black Spider-Man was first broached in 1975. Uh, it was in an issue of Spidey Super Stories, a non-canon series tying in with the hit kids show The Electric Company, and in one of them. A black woman named Valerie becomes Spider-Woman. This is several years before the Jessica Drew Spider-Woman. Um, so, so that, that is the earliest incarnation of that idea. I read somewhere that, um, I believe the Across the Spider-Verse's incarnation of Jessica Drew has her appearance taken more from this Valerie character than the comic Jessica Drew, although I don't, I'm very unfamiliar with the comics, so I wouldn't know. Um, but I'm I'm a little surprised it goes back that far, although I think more so than other heroes, and maybe this is just because of my familiarity with Spider-Verse, but I mean, in this into the Spider-Verse, the whole thing was anyone can wear the mask, you know? Uh uh 37-year-old Deadbeat can wear a mask, uh, an Afro-Latino teenager from Brooklyn can wear the mask, a uh, cartoon pig can wear the mask, anyone can wear the mask. So Maybe just because I have that knowledge from, and I mean, Spider-Verse existed as a comic thing before the movie. Um, the idea that anybody could be a spider person makes, like, fits a lot more for me versus, like, Superman who has a backstory that feels like being an alien that's so specific, like, there can't be another Superman yeah. or... Bruce Wayne, well, there's only so many billionaires with angsty backstories who are going to become uh, vigilantes. Not everybody can be Batman, you know. But anybody can get bitten by a radioactive spider. Yeah, and I think that's really true to... It is It is true to the first movie, but also really true to Stanley's kind of initial conception of the character. Um, as, as someone who could be anyone who wasn't like high tech or a mutant or an alien. Um, and so, and, and, you know, it, it, it's the seventies is the era where you're introducing Luke Cage and you have all of these hippy dippy seventies guys running the show at Marvel. And I think, I think, you know, the idea of bringing a black Spider-Man into the fold does make sense for that period. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I, I think probably hearing that the first black Spider-Man character was in the 70s, I didn't find that very surprising. That just seems like the era where that would have happened. And I will also say, like, the thing that I like about Spider-Man as a superhero is that, I mean, just if we go very basic with Peter Parker, he's just some kid from Queens. He's not, a, like like Alex is talking about with, with Superman and Batman, he's not a, a billionaire or an alien from another galaxy. He's just some kid, and I like that he's kind of a, kind of like an everyman type of person. And I will also say, this is part of why I've, I'm not crazy about some of the MCU Spider-Man stuff. Like, I don't like the, the whole thing where apparently they're kind of turning him into, like, baby Tony Stark. Because, like, I want him to be, like, kind of a... I want him to be, like, kind of like a disaster kid who's, like who can like barely pay his rent and works at the daily bugle and is like running all over New York being a New Yorker and not like taking Tony Stark's limo to the Met Gala. That's not Spider-Man to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that, uh, assessment. I do think they set up for 
for for that version of Spider-Man to move more in that direction, but they also could just throw that out in the next movie because they don't they don't have a plan there anymore. They never did. Um the concept of a canon black Spider-Man began in the summer of 2008 on the eve of uh Barack Obama's ascension. They were they were creating this this ultimate universe. They were doing all these modern reimaginings of characters and this idea just sort of came to be like there's going to be a black president, let's have a black Spider-Man. It's like the time for it. Yeah. I do wonder, I'm sure someone's done an analysis of it, but I'd love to see not just like reimaginings of pre-existing characters, but like how specifically around 2008, the number and the type of like black characters in popular fiction changed. Mm -hmm. Was it all of a sudden like, oh, geez, if there's a black president, we got to start adding black characters to things. Um like, I, I'm sure someone's written about this, but I'd love to read something about it. Totally. Yeah, we'll kind of we'll kind of get into that idea a little more in a bit. They, they, they were going to introduce that character in the Ultimatum storyline in, like, 2008, 2009, but they kind of just dropped it. They, you know, this was just a conversation they had, and they, they didn't end up doing it. Um, now, I'm about to run through, like five of the most consequential events in like 2010s pop culture in rapid succession so so bear with me here first january 2010 sony announces that they are rebooting the spider-man franchise rather than moving forward with sam raimi's spider-man 4 and i feel like <laughs> i mean I'm getting, there's more amazing spider-man stuff to do but, but like i feel like that that moment like like obviously reboots and remakes were already a thing but that moment was like here's this very successful franchise making insane amounts of money and they are very very quickly cycling it out <laughs> and that that sort of set the tone i think for the way that uh major studios kind of operate now oh absolutely i mean not just in terms of like this franchise is doing good but if we restart it, we can do more with it. But just the way that studios aren't looking at the longevity of of projects, like things getting taken off streaming services, there's a sense of like immediate re immediate reactions being more important than longevity. Um, although I think in some ways there is like kind of a point to it. Because I definitely feel, as someone who isn't a huge Marvel fan, in the past, I could go watch a Marvel movie or two that was coming out in theaters and get it. I saw the first Spider-Man with Tom Holland. I saw the first Guardians of the Galaxy. I saw Black Panther. That's it. And I got all those movies because none of them were too reliant on the lore that Marvel had built up. But everything that's like post-Infinity War, even though they've started the new era or whatever they call it, I truly feel that I cannot watch any of those films because they're going to require knowledge that I don't have. And I'm not going to put in the time to watch a dozen movies to pick up that knowledge. Yeah, and TV shows. That's the <laughs> that's the new one. And TV shows. So I kind of get that like after a certain point, there are enough new people in your target audience that reintroducing things makes sense but it has led to some very unfortunate practices in yeah. media and i think you're really speaking to how uh when, when you look at previous like examples of similar things like um you know the nolan batman movies or whatever it's like we're doing a whole new take on the story this was just like it, it wasn't about someone's vision coming in or you know 
like 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 thinking of it in a different way it was just we want to we see the the franchise potential the marketing potential in having a new spider-man yeah, I will say what what Alex said is kind of a big reason why I also am not that into Marvel movies as of late because I just don't want to have to watch five movies to understand one movie. It's I don't want to have to do homework to go to the movie theater. That that's what it feels like, especially because mm-hmm. frankly a lot of the movies in the MCU are not exactly what I would describe as the height of cinema. Mm-hmm. And I there's movies that I do really like in the MCU. Like I, Black Panther was great, and I loved Thor Ragnarok. And I, I remember watching those movies and coming away from it thinking I like these because I don't need to have seen 500 other movies to get mm-hmm. these because they've got good self-contained stories that I don't need six hours of context for. Yeah, uh, to keep the train rolling a few months later hollywood reporter reported that the casting of spider-man had been narrowed down to five young actors jamie bell frank delane josh hutcherson alden ehrenreich and andrew garfield <laughs> it was later reported that aaron taylor johnson and anton yelchin were also on the short list michael angarano and logan lerman also screen tested and in response to that short list and there's you know a lot of things you know none of those people were like known actors at that time um, but in response to that shortlist, writer Mark Bernardin opined, quote, the last thing Spider-Man should be is another white guy. And I think that op-ed, as, as we'll get into, <laughs> sort of became a whole thing. And it feels like so much of what studios, especially Disney, <laughs> have been trying to do in the last decade is, like, preempting that complaint, <laughs> you know? Definitely. And there's something specific to Spider-Man, I think, and how that initial op-ed was that, you know, doesn't necessarily apply to just, like, we're rebooting this character, how can we make it interesting? Just, just you know, pick an actor who is not white, you know? Yeah. Well, I've seen a lot of people talk about, like, maybe this conversation mostly had to do with Spider-Verse. To be honest, I did grow up liking superheroes, so I wasn't really into superhero movies at all until I really got into, into the Spider-Verse. Um, I've seen people talk about, like, Peter Parker being, like, this nerdy, you know, like, working class kid from Queens worked in the 40s, um, when that was still an image of kind of like an underdog, um, especially in, you know, pop culture wasn't introducing a lot of black protagonists, especially by white authors, by back then stanley probably wouldn't have been thinking about making peter parker black in the 40s but nowadays um that like working class kid living in the city isn't necessarily going to be uh like isn't necessarily going to be a white teenager Mm -hmm. nerds aren't seen as like an underclass in the same way that they used to be portrayed Mm -hmm. all the time in media so uh, how do you get that like underdog narrative that is a part of Peter Parker? Um, because more than just being like a kid from Queens, it's like this is the underdog. Um, this is a kid who is like very mild mannered and like doesn't seem like there's a lot going on with them, but all of a sudden they have all these powers. And so I think that making Peter Parker like someone or making a Spider Man who is black or another marginalized person 
fits that like underdog narrative of this person might struggle to succeed, but all of a sudden they have these powers and what do they do with them? I think it fits. And like I said, that's very different from Superman or Batman or, or Thor, because obviously those other two are DC or, or a, a, another billionaire like, like Tony Stark. The underdog narrative of Spider-Man is what's unique about the character and bringing in like an acknowledgement of like marginalization as a part of that underdog personality, I think is a way to add more depth to a Spider-Man, which is yeah. part of why Miles works so well. Exactly. There's like a narrative kind of underpinning to it as opposed to, and this is not to complain about Halle Bailey and the Little Mermaid. I hear that she was very good. Um, but it's sort of just doing it for, I, I mean, I mean, and she was a great choice for the role, but it, it, it feels sort of arbitrary because, because they're not sort of thinking about that in the movie at all. They're just telling the same story. Exactly. I've seen a lot of people discuss, like, what does it mean for a character to be black and, and sort of, like, does their blackness inform any of the story? And so a lot of times if you take a story that started out with a white character, like The Little Mermaid, and then just make that character black, either you do it without really ever having to acknowledge the character's blackness, or you end up, like, making something that misses out on, like, black experiences that and obviously i'm not talking about this from experience but this is what i've read and i definitely think that it makes sense um like yes the little mermaid can be black and all the people who are complaining about Halle bailey being cast were being racist Mm -hmm. but especially like making miles morales a character that isn't peter parker means that he can be a character who is informed by his blackness and his afro-latino identity rather than just exactly like Peter Parker, but black. Yeah, and I also think Spider-Man is sort of a, a politically conscious story uh, at its root in a way that, that, that changes that conversation. Simone? I was going to say, I think this is kind of one of the things with um, colorblind casting, which is, I think, kind of the approach that the Little Mermaid remake took. And I I don't really... I, I think with a story like The Little Mermaid, where it's so rooted in fantasy, I can understand saying, well, it doesn't necessarily matter, and we can just do colorblind casting because it's a mermaid. It doesn't it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I remember um, this is a completely different uh, universe. I remember one of my big complaints with watching Bridgerton is that when the show starts off and you have black characters, initially it seems like this is just colorblind casting and it's not going to be acknowledged in-universe. And then there is this acknowledgement of race in-universe, but in this way of like, well, Queen Charlotte was black and she married King George III and that ended racism. And it's this very weird... I almost feel like it would have worked better if they hadn't ever if they hadn't ever gone beyond the colorblind casting because the way that they tried to tackle systemic racism was such a misstep and was such a like like such a shallow understanding of why racism happens and how racism functions as a system. And it was part of the reason why I stopped watching because I was like this if you're going to say that this show is set in a Regency period and that we're in a different timeline where racism has ended, but everything is still functionally the same in how society works, that doesn't make any sense. 
And I, I think a lot of these like attempt attempts at I, I think this is also probably likely a problem of the writer's room more than anything else when you try and tell what you think are diverse stories, but your writing room is still, for example, like entirely white, you're not going to tell effective stories. Yeah, I think it, it's something that requires a lot of thought. And, you know, like with everything, the the behemoth sort of studios would want to streamline it and just, you know, do it and get the points and not have to think about it. Yeah. So... Mark Renardin does that op-ed, and in response, social media commentators suggest that Donald Glover, uh, who has just broken out in the first season of Community, would be a great pick. And Donald Glover soon tweets, you guys, let's make this happen, hashtag Donald for Spider-Man. That hashtag quickly trended on Twitter, and a Facebook fan page dedicated to getting Glover the role sprung up overnight. Um, and later that year, in the season two premiere of Community, Glover wears a Spider-Man shirt in reference to that campaign. I love, um, I know that in Into the Spider-Verse, when Miles sneaks into his uncle's apartment, they show that, like, a scene of, uh, from Community with Donald mm-hmm. Glover wearing that shirt in there, and then also knowing that he, he played Prowler in the, the MCU, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, like, this very full circle thing in Into the Spider-Verse with that acknowledgement, but I never actually knew that there was that campaign. Um, I always think a lot about like those online fan campaigns and how typically fruitless they are. But I do think it says something for public perception, right? Like I, I doubt that that campaign was ever going to get Donald Glover the role, but I also think that it says something to executives to say, there's a lot of movement behind people who want a Spider-Man that isn't, um, you know, a young white guy. And Maybe it's not going to happen now because we're not going to let the fans think that they can control our decisions, but it's something that they probably keep in mind. Yeah, and I also think it did things for for Donald Glover. Yeah, at the time I was aware of this campaign because I was the one ten year old watching Community, um, and and if if you didn't watch Community or or happen to know about like Derek Comedy or whatever, you you wouldn't have known who Donald Glover was and really more than anything else I think that this campaign said to A studios and B the general public like there is this groundswell of support for Donald Glover people want to see him win little did anyone know uh Marvel writer Brian Michael Bendis needed to see Glover in that shirt because he had been tasked with introducing the aforementioned Black Spider-Man to Marvel's Ultimate Universe they brought it back a couple years later the Marvel team had decided that they were going to kill off Ultimate Peter Parker in an extended series, The Death of Spider-Man, and Bendis gave Donald Glover, quote, mucho credit for developing the concept of the new Spider-Man, Miles Morales. <laughs> mucho credit. Yeah, in, in the comics world, Bendis is known to be uh, an, an odd character. Um, you know the, like, the They Fly Now thing from, from Star Wars? A fun fact about me is that I have never seen a single Star Wars movie. <laughs> it's used as shorthand for this kind of thing, where like the one character is like they fly now, and the other character is like they fly now, and then someone else is like they fly now. You know that 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 sort of talk in comics that's referred to as Bendis speak. Oh, <laughs> it's very funny. So yeah, weird guy came up with this character, 13-year-old son of a Puerto Rican mother, Rio Morales, and a Black American father, Jefferson Davis. 
Um, Which sure is the name that they picked for that character. It it, it has never actually been explained why his name is Jefferson Davis. Um, But I do imagine that Marvel would have drawn the line at naming the first black Spider-Man Miles Davis. Yeah, I I will say, I I think it is absolutely insane, though, to to give the father of the first um, black Spider-Man the same name as one of the former Confederate presidents. I I think that sure is a choice. I think Miles Davis would have been, a, frankly, a better choice because that's an icon and not a Confederate fucking president. It, it, it's, it's very bizarre, and it speaks to, you know, Bendis, this, this white guy, Kind of, kind of being tasked with creating this whole character. There's another very bizarre thing in the early Miles stories where, like, you know, the fact that his uncle is a criminal, it makes him, um, wonder if he is, like, if, if he is, like, hardwired to be a bad, he, the, the quote from Bendis is, uh, uh, if quote self destruction is hardwired into his DNA, and it's like that is a that is a weird thing for for, for a white guy to be writing <laughs> in a story about a black character. Like I, it, it speaks, I think, to sort of the tone deafness of like I don't know. It's like that era in comics where everyone was was sort of liberal, but like not expected to do as much work. To, to to understand, I feel like. Yeah, it, it's also the idea, um, I've, I've seen actually a bunch of people talking about this, of the idea that he didn't understand the idea of someone being Afro-Latino as them being from a black, uh, from a black family that was also a Latino family. It could only be a mixed race person who had a black parent and a Latino parent, which is not really what that term means and it's not like it's not necessarily the background of a lot of afro-latino people there's just a lot of black people from latin countries it's because there's black people everywhere i've seen i've seen too many tiktok comments of people going but he's not afro-latino he's black uh in in reference to the movies um as though i mean the sequel made it very very explicit that rio is puerto rican and she is also clearly black um so it it might it's not like the ignorance has really gone away but um i I was curious because you didn't mention it was jefferson always a police officer or is that something that they added later on no he was always uh, a cop yeah okay just because when you mentioned when you mentioned the hardwired thing um, because uh, in in the Spider-Verse movies, the point is kind of like Aaron and Jefferson kind of started on the wrong path and Jefferson corrected to the quote-unquote right path, although we can get into the politics of him being a cop. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aaron went down the wrong path of staying and sort of like crime and eventually becoming the Prowler. So... The idea that Miles thinks he's hardwired when his dad is the one who follows the law yeah. doesn't really make sense to me narratively. It's all Bendis, baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 just it's a very strange thing and it's it's very clearly a complete lack of understanding of like I I it, it almost has the attitude of like that he's never interacted with some that he's never like interacted with a black person for longer than five minutes. That this is how he writes about black culture. 
I certainly don't think he was hitting the books before yeah. before writing this story. <laughs> he wasn't reading a lot of theory. Yeah. So Miles interacted with the mainline continuity Peter Parker in 2012's Spider-Man series. And then he was a really popular character, but he wasn't really boosting sales for the Ultimate series overall. Like, people were buying the Miles comics, but not really anything else. This led to a 2013 storyline, Cataclysm, in which the Ultimate universe is sort of destroyed, and Miles is transported into the mainstream Marvel universe. Also in 2014, Miles made his first appearance outside of comics in the Disney XD series Ultimate Spider-Man. He was voiced by Donald Glover. Isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis endorsed the idea of bringing Miles to the big screen as early as 2014. So did Andrew Garfield. Um, but uh, Avier had said that there were no plans in the works to make that happen. And then the Sony leak which we've covered uh, upwards of five times on this show at this point. So to November 2014, hundreds of thousands of Sony emails were leaked thanks to a group of hackers based in North Korea. The hack is suspected to be in retaliation for the Seth Rogen comedy The Interview, which depicts, among other things, the assassination of Kim Jong-un. And those leaks revealed internal scrambling at Sony over what to do with the Spider-Man franchise before and after the release of The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And one email in this leak sent by Amy Pascal uh, contains a list of projects that Sony has in development, and one of the line items is, quote, Spider-Man animated 2018 Lord and Miller top secret. Very secret. Yeah. So secret. Obviously, no one was expecting the leaks, but that, I mean, that says to me that the project was a priority, right? That they wanted it to be a big deal so they didn't want news to get out about it um yeah which is interesting because the reputation of sony animation prior to into the spider-verse i mean i think their most recent film before that might have been the emoji movie if not that was like one of their more recent films the reputation of sony prior of sony animation prior to into the spider-verse was that they put out mediocre to bad movies that often play to like the lowest common denominator um Mm -hmm. so it does actually it's i think that's exciting that from early on in the process they were treating that film as enough of a priority that they wanted it to be like a big deal so they kept it secret yeah, at this point, they probably didn't know what actually what they say is that they, they kind of didn't know what it was going to be. But um, they 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 were in the business of Lord and Miller because they had made the Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs movies, which are big hits. And uh, those were for Sony. The 21 Jump Street movies also for Sony, also big successes. And, and they had just put out a Lego movie at Warner. So, you know, there was there was a reason to want to try and keep them. Um Pascal approached the two of them about doing an animated Spider-Man comedy. Just, that was the initial pitch. And what they said to her was they wanted to do a Miles Morales movie, and they wanted to base it on the Spider-Verse arc, which at the time was, like, currently happening in the comics. So early on, it was like, Miles, Spider-Verse, I think the actual story of the movie uh, was 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 in a very early stage at that time, but there are reasons that first I need to be excited. The initial announcement made at Comic Con in April 2015 was that an animated Spider-Man film would be released in 2018 to be written by Lord and Miller. 
I actually don't know this. How much of the Spider-Verse movies is like, how much the plot of it is just directly what it was in the comics or how much of it is a, a different plot? None of it is like the comics. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. I didn't know this. I, I had seen some people talking about this and I wasn't sure. As far as I know, they really just take the concept of a Spider-Verse of taking multiple different kinds of spider people and putting them together uh, and roll with that rather than any actual plot line. Okay. Exactly. So, uh, by June 2016, a script was finished, and Bob Parachetti, who is a DreamWorks storyboard artist, was brought on to direct. Sony confirmed that the film would focus on Miles Morales in January 2017, and then announced that Peter Ramsey, who had directed Rise of the Guardians, was the first black director of, uh, of a major studio animated movie in America. Um, he was now co-directing. Rodney Rothman was added as the third director later that year. He had previously co-written 22 Jump Street, so he had worked with Lord and Miller. Rothman and Alex Hirsch also made contributions to the script. And then the first footage of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse screened at a Sony Pictures presentation in January 2017. Uh, you know, only people in that room saw it, but, uh, like, the buzz was swirling about, like, the style of this movie is crazy. Yeah, there might be more time to get into it later, because right now we're doing kind of like the the timeline stuff. But as a major animation fan, I think that this new uh, this new wave of people are calling it like Spider-Verse style, although I don't really think that's accurate. But I think it's the idea of like 3D animated films with like 2D textures added to it to make it a less like semi-realistic style which we had become accustomed to from studios like Pixar and DreamWorks is obviously on the rise with uh, Mitchell's versus the machines, Puss in Boots, the last wish um, and being the like technology being developed even more here and across the spider verse. Um, and I've seen people talk about how like wish Disney's upcoming film seems to be like trying to apply some of that, but is almost like too hesitant to leave the Disney style to apply it in substantial ways, at least from the trailers we've seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it looking at Sony's sort of animated division and their ideas there, it kind of seems like their idea early on was what we're going to do is CG animation that feels like a cartoon in a way that the other studios don't. So they had they had Hotel Transylvania, they were investing in Gendy Kartakowski, and they had uh Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, and and and, and both of those series kind of kind of play with like the physics of 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 you know cartoons. Um but 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 have like a more clear more clearly CG, you know, three D style. I think they, they had clearly this breakthrough with Spider Verse that was like, now this is how you do it. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's also, I, I've seen the term referred to as the animation age ghetto, but pretty much the idea that like animated films are for kids and that both of those, both of those films, I haven't seen Hotel Transylvania, but from what I gather and I have seen Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, they have a very, uh, a solid immaturity to them. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, but they are super brightly colored and very round and um are very accessible to young kids which was their intention um and so i think because of that perhaps that style was seen as something that like was different from 
Pixar films, which have had the reputation of being like for families so adults can enjoy them as well. Um, and so I think that there's definitely the comic book aspect to it, but the less inherently cartoony design of the majority of Into the Spider-Verse minus uh, Spider-Ham might have contributed to like this new wave of people incorporating that um, less semi-realistic 3D style. Mm-hmm. Later in 2017, Miles was subtly referenced in Sony and Disney's Spider-Man Homecoming. Donald Glover appears in the movie as Aaron Davis, makes a comment about his nephew. <clears throat> Since then, no further efforts have been made to introduce Miles Morales into the MCU. Although I could see that changing. Um, eh, they're going to stop making MCU movies before they get to it. Uh, they'll reboot it, you know. However, Miles would finally make his big screen debut a year later, December 2018, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. The film was an instant success, widely regarded as a watershed moment for Western animation. It received universal acclaim, performed better than it was projected to at the box office. It made $384 million worldwide. It also won Best Animated Feature at the Oscars a few months later, breaking a six-year streak for Disney. And today, its fingerprints are all over Western, yeah, like, like, American major studio animation, but also, like, there, there are, you can see the influence all over the world. It's, it's just, it's a wonderful movie. I think it, it's certainly my favorite superhero movie, and I really think it's one of the best superhero movies of all time. It's, I've, I've, I've watched it so many times. I watched it with my parents, who are not superhero movies, superhero movie people at all. They're like 60 year old boomers and, deeply uninterested in superheroes and they loved it so much and I remember also really loving it because the movie is very specifically set in Bed-Stuy which is where I grew up and there's all these little details of like street signs and street corners that Miles goes around that I'm like oh I know that street corner I know exactly where this is set and it was Something that was really nice to see because a lot of depictions of New York in movies are very non-specific and are kind of just like, let's put the bridges in the background or the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty. Whereas both Spider-Verse movies, this is up, we'll get into this later, is like, they are set in such a specific part of Brooklyn and it feels much more grounded and real, even though it's happening in this very cartoonish style. And it, mm-hmm. I like, I think I'm, I'm almost, I absolutely cried the first time I watched it. And I probably have cried a bunch more times since seeing it for the first time. Yeah. I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I could sing its praises forever. Um, I saw it in theaters with my whole family, so my parents and my brother. And I mean, I came out of it more excited than my parents did. But my parents have just never really clicked with animated stuff so it's just like that's to be expected um i think that as a fan of animation i think a lot about um the concept of like animated films and their target and their target audiences and sort of how people receive that and i think that spider-verse was so exciting to me because it absolutely is capable of being seen by kids but i felt like it spoke to a older like teenage audience almost um i was a little bit older than miles when it came out i would just turned 17 i think so a bit older but still a teenager and um i felt like 
it was meant for me as a teenage fan of animation in a way that most animated films, at least produced in the United States, ever are. So that was really exciting to me when I saw it. Yeah, yeah. I uh, It was obviously a big moment when it came out. Um, <clears throat> I think my dad was very confused by the animation style. Um, it's, it's, it's an overwhelming film, you know, and I think that is what a lot of people like about it and also what a lot of, you know, uh, parents might not like about it. <laughs> But it sort of has that everything everywhere thing. I think there's, I don't know what it is. It's probably the internet, but you know, there's something about modern culture, I think, where the things that are standing out to that generation of teens and young adults are just totally, totally overloaded, you know, um, brightly colored, action packed, uh, visually all over the place. There's lots of jokes. It's just like, you know, throwing everything at you. In a film like this, I think. There are tiny bits of, like, character acting. It's, obviously, it's not acting because it's all, like, visual. But, like, the ways that the characters move and hold themselves, I think, in Spider-Verse is so much more specific than happens in other films. Like, um, the scene where Miles is watching Peter B. And he just slowly puts his hand up to his chin to imitate him. Or even, like, and we can get into this more later, but, like, the bagel gag. It's so mm-hmm. subtle. Um, and without the internet, those, I mean, like the, the Miles holding his chin thing became a meme. The bagel thing got really popular. And it's something that most people would have missed without like GIFs going around online of people being able to like zoom in on that moment and see it over and over and over again. Um, and, uh, people talk about how like online, uh, how like online culture has affected films and like films will have these quippy one-liners that they know will like be popular quotes or get made into gifs that will get viral um but i think that spider-verse is really good at adding in a ton of little like easter eggs that in the theater can seem overwhelming but becomes something for fans to really invest in as a part of the film uh once they're uh uh, thinking about it in online spaces afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say one of the things that I also really love about the about Into the Spider Verse, and I, I I could talk about how much I love Into the Spider Verse all day, is it's such. I mean, it is a very visually stimulating film, and it's very colorful and bright. And the thing that I really liked about it was that a lot of superhero films and a lot of action films suffer from this thing where it seems like the people making them are uncomfortable with how cartoonish the genre is. And they think it has to be really gray and serious and not a lot of bright colors in order for it to be good. And in, in contrast, Spider-Verse, which did not, which was fully cartoonish and bright and colorful, got so much more acclaim than those movies. Cause it wasn't trying to be a serious arty movie with, everything shot in super gray lightning to convey how serious it was. It was just trying to be a good movie. And it was. We're going to move on. Uh, The thing that I always think about with Spider-Verse is the scenes of like Miles and Gwen in school and Miles is trying to be cool and just totally not (laughs) like, and it's that stuff where like it is, it's like a very cartoony, you know, like the way he moves and the way it's shot and all that. And yet 
it's it's a totally slice of life moment. It's something that is not fantastical or or superhero at all. And I think I think that balance is is my favorite thing about Spider Verse. Um, by November 2018, before the movie came out, Sony had already greenlit a sequel as well as a Gwen led spinoff. The sequel was set to be directed by Joaquin Dos Santos, who is known for directing episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender and Voltron, and written by Dave Callahan, who is most known for creating the Expendables, um, you know, action movie uh, <laughs> script doctor guy. Um, the movie was originally slated for April 2022. It was delayed to October 2022 at the onset of COVID-19, and then delayed a couple more times for reasons we'll get into. Um in early 2021, it was announced that Lord and Miller were working on the script and that two more directors had been added, Kemp Powers, who co-directed Soul, and Justin K. Thompson, who was the production designer on the first movie. So Thompson and Dos Santos had never directed a movie before. I know that when they announced that, it made me very nervous, partially because I looked and saw that there wasn't a lot of directing experience behind the team, and also because when they announced Joaquin Dos Santos, it was at like a time when Voltron was going down the drain as someone who mm. liked the series the first couple of seasons and got into it there. Um, so seeing what Kim Dos Santos's name attached to the film made me very nervous as someone who was watching like not great things happen with Voltron. Um, I feel like it all turned out very well in the end, but that was my initial reaction. My initial reaction was like, this is my favorite film of all time, and now they're giving uh, the shitty Voltron guy the sequel. What are they doing? <laughs> it's also like, you know, none of the directors from the first movie came back, and that I think is something for people to be reasonably worried about. Um, in December 2021, Lord and Miller revealed that the film would be split into two parts because the story they had written was too big to tell in one movie. So their release dates were shifted from to June 2023 and March 2024, where they've pretty much stayed. Lord and Miller say that they initially told Sony that Across the Spider-Verse would be about the same size as its predecessor. It ended up having the largest crew of any animated film in history, with a thousand plus crew members and 240 characters set in six different universes. It is also the longest animated film ever produced in the U.S. So on the press tour for Spider-Man No Way Home, Tom Holland said that he had been approached by Amy Pascal about doing something in the Spider-Verse movies. Um, one writer speculated that Holland, like, shot a live-action thing for the movies, and that was why it was delayed. That turned out not to be true. Um, and, you know, Tom Holland just, just bullshits. <laughs> like, you know, probably, probably none of it was true. I mean, if it, it built up hype for the movie, so... Exactly. The intention was for each universe to look like it was drawn by a different artist, using six different animation styles. For instance, Gwen's world is inspired by watercolor paintings. Miguel's is based on Sid Mead's neo-futurist illustrations. You know. Eh, I actually think that other than those two, the rest of them look the same. But, but you know, they, they, they clearly... Um, you know, you, you can see the effort that went into that. There's also the Lego world, which was created by 14-year-old Preston Matanga, who made a Lego recreation of the movie's first teaser that impressed the filmmakers. They had had him do the entire Lego sequence. I was so amazed when I heard that, um, because I got really excited when I in the theater when I saw the Lego sequence. I, I directly was like, oh, that's a nod to the fact that like Lord and Miller were uh, involved with the Lego movie. Um, I thought it was so fun. We get to see a little J. Jonah Jameson in there, which is always fun to see a nod to. So I, I really love that yeah, sequence. J.K. Simmons. 
Production on Across the Spider-Verse was completed on May 20th, 2023, 12 days before <laughs> the film was premiered, uh, and, and multiple slightly different versions are, are currently screening in theaters, as has recently been discovered. There, there are different versions of the movie. Oh, right. I, I saw someone online saying there's something with, um, I forget, I don't know exactly which, what to call her. I guess, um, Miguel's little, like, computer assistant, Lila, mm-hmm. there's apparently, like, different sunglasses or something that she wears or that she puts on him in, in the different yeah. versions. I had no idea. I absolutely did not know that there were different versions. Yeah. I hadn't even heard of it until you just said it. So I thought you were making a reference to the fact that some uh, theaters were sent a version with very poor sound quality and that Sony sent out like a different version with better sound quality like two weeks into the run. Yeah, they did. They did send out an updated screener, which might it might actually be that those are the two versions that are out there. People have pointed out a lot of like slight differences. Um, So it's hard to say whether that was intentional or not. It also received it came out. Uh, outgrossed the first movie within 12 days, uh, could finish with more than double the initial, uh, the, the, the first movie's box office. It also received equally raved reviews, once again being called a watershed moment for animation. And this morning, Vulture released a report that working conditions on Across the Spider-Verse caused over 100 animators to quit. I, that, that is a news story that I did not know about, and that is really frustrating to hear and i mean i really think we're in the middle of the current writer's strike and potentially there's also going to be a actor's strike and i really hope that the animators union is able to if 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 they don't strike to get better working conditions but if they do strike that they are able to do so successfully in a way that helps protect animators from situations like that Mm-hmm. Here are more details. Uh, the team of a thousand plus was brought to Vancouver. They, you know, people flown in from from all over the world to work on the trailer first, and then they were given no work for three to six months while the story was being tinkered with. They were just kind of asked to sit around as the release date got closer and closer. By the time they actually started production, they had a significantly truncated time span to get the movie finished. Animators worked up to eleven hours a day and up to seven days a week. Moreover, Phil Lord is said to have been indecisive throughout the production process, constantly making changes to the story that required fully rendered scenes to be scrapped or recreated up to five times. Animators say that the vast majority of the notes came from Lord, not Miller, not Callahan, not the other producers, not the movie's three directors. Uh, but a Sony executive claims that Lord was the messenger and that, you know, all the changes sort of went through him. Uh, the insiders behind this report say that that uh, with this film having been worked on again up to 12 days before its premiere, there is zero chance that Beyond the Spider-Verse is ready by March. Okay. So the fact that you're saying this honestly doesn't surprise me um, because I have been, I haven't done my own research, which is like, I'll say that myself, that's my own fault. I have been feeling since I've heard this whole, like, there were a thousand animators working on it, um, that it was greenlit, like, right when the first movie was coming out. Like, hearing the stories about how it took them, like, practically the entire production process to develop the animation style that they use for Hobie. Um, that 
I doubted that the working conditions were ideal for this movie. Um, the details that you're giving me make it worse than my initial suspicions might have been. But um, as someone who is a a big fan of anime, it's like a well-known thing by anime fans that the majority of studios in Japan have awful working conditions for anime animators, especially uh, low Hey, like low ranked animators who are doing the in betweens, they often are working for practically nothing. Um, uh, back in uh, 2021, there was a show being released called Wonder Egg Priority, weird name, it's an anime, where the entire second half of the show episodes were being delayed by hours, if not days, because they, the uh, like TV studios had not been given the final episode. Episodes were being worked on literally until the minute that they were being released. And so, and it's a show that has a beautiful art style and is incredibly detailed, which probably contributed to the fact that uh, the studios were working on it until minutes before it was on air. I am not that surprised at the poor quality, that at the poor working conditions for the animators. And um, what I'm more surprised about right now is that if Beyond the Spider-Verse is not going to be available by March, why they have not pushed it back yet. I, I will say this is kind of, um, this is a bit of um, an out of left field comparison. Well, maybe not for this podcast, but um, when, Rocky, when you were describing like the, they were just like sitting there with nothing to do for three to six months, that whole thing, it, um, it reminds me of like the whole mess of production that was happening with the Homestuck games where production kept getting delayed and the animators weren't given very much to work on and then they were like repeatedly different people were fired and then uh, new people were hired and there was at one point there was a fully um I believe there was like a 3D version of the game that was completely scrapped and then replaced with a new animation style and it was very, very messy, and I wish I remembered more of this off the top of my head. Um, I would highly recommend people w to watch um, Sarah Zed's A Brief History of Homestuck, because it's a really good video essay about all this. Um, but I will say, I did not have unilaterally positive thoughts on Across the Spider-Verse, and while I did think it was a really beautiful film, there are a bunch of things that really, I, I, that I, I remember feeling really annoyed about leaving, mainly just like the, the intense cliffhanger at the end. I remember feeling like. See, I, now we're really good. Now we're all late again. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I was, I was ready to come in like a bitch and be like, here's what I didn't like about this movie. I thought the ending was one of the best superhero movie endings I've ever seen. So that was not one of my oh, complaints okay. at all. This, I'm with you, Rocky. So, Simone, most people that I've talked to about this film feel the same way you do. They hate the intense cliffhanger. Absolutely valid. My feeling on it, especially as someone who followed the news behind the movie, so I knew that it was a two-parter, is that um, not only is it, like, a great, strong ending that really hooks you in for the next movie, I think that it's great for engagement um, for a film that... They're probably not going to do the exact same, like, marketing process for Beyond the Spider-Verse that they are for this movie whenever that film comes out. Because now we know it's probably not coming out uh, in early 2024. 
So I think they're going to rely on like the the hype that was built for this film that they want to carry forward to the next one. And so ending with a cliffhanger is great for fan engagement. And so I think that like narratively it's good because they end it in a really punchy way, but also like strategically it's smart to have fans wondering what's going to happen next because that will carry them to the next movie. Yeah, I feel like for me it's like first of all it feels very comic booky. Second of all, it like I I, I like that it peters out, no pun intended, because like <laughs> I'm so used to a lot of these superhero movies having like an hour long climax and then just suddenly ending after that. And like you know, with this movie, it's like they have the big extended chase, and then the last like twenty twenty five minutes are spent on these new worlds, these new twists. Yeah, like like it 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 gets to have a a a movie ending in a way that these movies often don't. I will say, I am in general not a big fan of cliffhangers. I, I think the reason why. I personally didn't like it is because I I said this earlier, one of the things that I love so much about Into the Spider-Verse is that it's this fully self-contained story and that it it doesn't do the really annoying MCU thing where you have to watch 10 movies to understand what's happening. And I had, I was not aware of like the, this movie has been split into two parts thing before I went and saw it. I don't know how I missed that. Um, But it it was it felt very out of nowhere and i will say i i wouldn't have hated if it had ended on the cliffhanger but i i think i don't know there there were parts of the movie that i didn't feel like it it felt like there was not a lot of like satisfying it didn't feel like any of the arcs really ended all that like mm. in a way that made me feel satisfied like the one that ends in the most satisfying way is gwen where she goes back to her universe and talks to her dad and then she also forms her new band and then her story begins with her wanting to have a band and then she does at the end of the movie i really liked gwen i thought gwen was by far one of the best parts of the movie but i will say something that i was not crazy about with gwen was that the movie starts off so solidly about her and then just switches paths to Miles, and it felt like they were setting up Gwen to be the lead and then switched it to Miles. Yes, a lot of thoughts on that. First of all, the going just, just as we go into talking about the movie, I think hearing that the story was constantly changing and there were and it sort of didn't have a script makes a lot of sense to me. Um <laughs> We start in Gwen's world. First 10 minutes are in Gwen's world, and it is just unbelievably stunning, you know, impressionistic and a- animation, just like, th- that is the groundbreaking stuff, the stuff that's in, in Gwen's universe. I kind of was disappointed that after 10 minutes, most of the rest of the movie is 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 what we saw in the last movie, I think. Um, but... The Gwen story has a great beginning, and I think such a compelling thing with her dad, where you know she takes off the mask and he still holds the gun up. That was that was staggering, and then her story has a has a good ending too. It just doesn't have a middle. Exactly, I agree. Now that you're bringing that up, I do want to say I think not to heap in praises while we're talking about criticisms because I have my own criticisms to get to. Um, 
I think you just pointed out something. It's an amazing parallel to Uncle Aaron in the first film because Uncle Aaron is the villain, but when Miles reveals that he's Spider-Man, he immediately stops and he would have like, I'm like, obviously you're wondering like, what would he have done if Kingpin hadn't shot him? But he immediately is like, putting his mask back down, does not want to fight him, and ends up dying for it. While Gwen's dad, who's on the side of the law, obviously, again, cops, um, like, does not put his gun down when he sees that his own daughter is Spider-Woman. Because in that moment, being a cop is more important to him than being a dad. And obviously, mm. that's the mm. whole thing that resolves at the end of the film, is that he has realized that being a dad is the whole thing is that he's a good cop and that he is not uh like out there wildly abusing his power but at the end of the film the point is that even if you're a good cop that doesn't make you a good person and so he chooses to be a good dad rather than a good cop and quits being a cop um which i i love that ending um i thought that uh it was it was great to see a resolution compared to Uncle Aaron, where obviously, like, the whole thing is that we can't see the resolution because that is the familial death. Death That's a part of the whole canon event thing for mm-hmm. Miles. Um, but yeah, I agree that we, we especially, like, it works at first when we see her in Miles in Miles' universe because there is still such a heavy focus on her and their dynamic but once you add in the other characters and then once we get to the HQ and then it's all about Miles and Miguel, we we really lose sight of her story and we only have her and how she plays into Miles' story. Yeah. yeah. And I think the well, what you're talking about with Gwen's dad, it, it's such a it, it like it's such a great twist on the basic like good and bad dichotomy of the original Miles story. <laughs> like, like it, it, it's totally problematizing it in a way that I think is really cool. But yeah, I think it's the way that I feel about almost every character in this movie. I think the first movie had a lot of irons in the fire and managed to make them all feel like they had even even the the, the comic relief ones. You know, sort of felt like they had a journey to go on, and you know, you didn't you didn't feel like you didn't get enough of them. With this, I feel like you know. We, we, we meet Hobie and he doesn't really have an arc. And we have these, we, we have these characters who are like the new, I, I mean, I mean, Spider-Man India, like, disappears for the rest of the movie after, after, after his, his, his big scene. And, you know, there's, um, Jess Drew and, um, I, I mean, and I mean, Riley? I could, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I could keep going, but there's all these characters who sort of show up and get an introduction, and then that's it. And the characters yeah. from the first movie, I think, often, you know, are are put more front and center, but still don't really get to progress beyond how they've already progressed, except for Miles. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's, that is my biggest criticism of the film is I don't know if it's production reasons. I mean, we know that during the production of this film, John Mulaney went to rehab. So that may well have had an effect on how the story was written um, and like the the role that the B team from the first movie had in the second one. But um, I think that what the first film did is that we got six spider people but the film made it very clear that the ones that were important were Peter B. Gwen and Miles. And so they were able to develop those ones. And so because the film made that very clear, 
you don't feel too bad when there isn't as much with Penny and Noir and Spider-Ham. For this movie, I think that they don't do as good of a job as get at getting us to understand which of these new characters are important. And then if they want characters to be important, giving us something fulfilling for them. I think that uh, we lose Gwen, but she still gets a good story. And obviously Miles is the main character. I think that Peter B is less effective because I don't think that they utilize him super well, even though I love the parts with Mayday. I think that Pavitter and Hobie are not are clearly meant to be important, especially now that they're part of Gwen's team, as we see that in at the very end of the movie. But we don't get quite enough of them to really sink our teeth into, especially, as you said, as Pavitter leaves. And then I thought that Jess Drew and Ben Riley were completely underutilized. Ben Riley, I think they tried to have him be what like noir was in the first movie which is he has a joke and it's about being angsty but it Mm -hmm. did not do enough for me and especially knowing that they cast andy samberg i was really disappointed at how little they used him um so i think and again because and maybe it was production issues maybe it had something to do with john mulaney and his health um but the fact that they had a b team that pre-existed and all we get is a single line from penny feels like a waste of characters although we don't know why they made that story choice and real life issues may have affected that yeah i i will say that the specifically with jessica it felt like she it felt like she and and gwen were kind of supposed to be like i guess an alternate um peter b and miles and i would have really liked to see more of the dynamic between gwen and jessica drew because it feels like gwen is kind of describing jessica as her mentor but then we don't really get to see a lot of the mentoring. We just see her being mad at Gwen. It's a really funny thing. Like we're through through Gwen, we're just sort of led to believe that there's a better Spider-Verse sequel that happened off screen. <laughs> oh my God. Exactly. It feels like I would have, I, I love Miles. He's a wonderful character and there's so many great moments with him in this movie. Um, and there's so many great moments with him and Gwen. I just, I have to say this or else I'm going to forget the scene where they hang out at the top of the Williamsburg Savings Bank Tower um, made both me and my dad cry because <laughs> it's 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 such a it it's it, it made me cry kind of in the same feeling of like this is set in in my Brooklyn this is a story about the place where I live and I loved that so much and it felt like there was this whole other story with Gwen that I had really wanted to see happening that uh, her adventures with the the Spider-Man team and Miguel and these other characters and just none of it is on screen at all. Yeah. And to be fair, they they are still theoretically planning on doing a Gwen spin-off eventually, but they've I know. like I don't know, they've shown us so much I like like they they can't do what they've shown us already again. And it's like if you put those Gwen scenes in a movie about Gwen, you'd have a like like the best possible <laughs> version of that story. I think something that I've been thinking about, and maybe this is me like trying to give a pass to the film because I don't want to acknowledge its flaws, is that it was built as a two-parter, right? And part of me thinks that there's a future where we can go back and watch these movies together and we're not going to be as dissatisfied with characters like Pavitter and Hobie because we will they will get to do more in the second film. And that's what I hope. Um, but I do agree that 
the other film found this like very careful balance with like having too many cooks in the kitchen like within the narrative of the film itself and this film does not have that balance i mean literally with the hundreds of spider people running around but also like who they give priority to they don't have the same balance yeah the I, I I don't know if we need to. We've already had had plenty of time here, so I don't know if we need to go through every beat of the story. I think the the second biggest complaint for me is that it definitely falls prey to a lot of s- some modern superhero movie problems in a way that the previous one didn't. And specifically, I've I've become so annoyed with how the idea of Easter eggs has evolved into, like, here's an entire clip of another movie you liked. <laughs> like, like, like to be showing us just just full scenes of Andrew Garfield and Tobey Wire, and also to be, like, to, you know, up the ante by just being like, actually, every movie is part of our movie. You know, it, it, it's, it, it feels like it's playing that game in a way that it shouldn't be. I wasn't personally bothered by that, but that may also have to do with my personal detachment from other Spider-Man films. Because like I said, I've seen one Tom Holland film. I haven't seen any Tobey Maguire or Andrew Garfield film. Um, I recognize that they had the part with uh, Donald Glover as... um, as the Prowler. I thought that went on a little bit too long, but I wasn't personally bothered. But I know that there are theaters where those kind of Easter eggs will have people going, look, it's Tom Holland. Look, it's Tobey Maguire. And luckily I was not in a theater that did that. It, it, it is, it's, it's very disappointing to, I guess, retroactively hear about, I, I keep coming back to like, that I, I hadn't, I had not heard about this vulture story about how bad the behind the scenes situation was. And it sours the movie for me in a way that even though I already had these criticisms, I still came away being like, I had a really fun time. And I went to see it with my dad because he loves the first movie and we had a really great time watching it. And all of, my criticisms knowing the backstage situation feel less like, oh, these are flaws in an otherwise pretty good movie, more like, oh, these are here because of a genuinely toxic work environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the third major complaint I have, which, sorry, but oh, the third major complaint I think is also makes a lot more sense in the context of that story is that I think this movie is equally joke heavy to the first one. I think the first movie had a lot of gags and this one does too, but like half of the jokes in this movie are not funny. (laughs) And you were talking about the Donald Glover scene. I think that's a great example. There's a moment where like uh, Miguel asks his computer to do the thing. There's a, there's all kind again that like the, the those very like modern Hollywood blockbuster jokes that like are kind of just meant to be inoffensive and play all over the world. Like I I I I thought the sense of humor was lacking, and it makes sense to me that you know what, another part of the story that I heard is that when you look at Lego Movie or 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 Jump Street or the first Spider Verse, you're talking about Lord and Miller coming in not putting their creative input in until the movie is almost done. And then they sort of hatchet it up and, and, you know, add, add all their little gags and things. Um, 
So, so I, I, I think the, the, whatever their process was prior, they did something different with this movie where they were there from, from beat one trying to, trying to build it from zero. And whatever they did before clearly worked for all those movies. Um, I think here they probably got two in their own heads about it. Um, maybe there, there was less control around them. Maybe the directors weren't as involved as they were in the first one. Maybe, you know, they weren't bringing in people like Alex Hirsch to, 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 to help write it. But like, you know, I, I think it's a, a product of overwriting. Yeah, I it, I will say like the whole thing of like constantly adding notes and editing as the movie went along and like changing stuff. It's almost like it, it's it's such a funny thing because um, I have a tendency to be a perfectionist when I write and I have to actively stop myself from doing this thing where I'll be like just trying to write like a basic first draft and get all this stuff out there onto the page. And I have to like actively stop myself from editing while I'm writing the first draft or else I'm never going to get it finished. And it almost seems like that's what happened with this, like, multi-multi-million-dollar movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to end on a, on a, on a bad note. Yeah, um, no. We will, we'll talk about things we like about the movie. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess my, my feeling about it is that you, while you point it out, I see it. I think that personally, for how I watch movies, it doesn't it's less of a negative for me and more that there aren't as many memorable jokes in this one as there were in the, in the first movie, but it doesn't, to me, it's a little less of a detriment than it is to you, but obviously like people feel differently about that stuff. So. Mm -hmm. And what I'll say about this movie positively relative to the first one is that I think the fact that it is so light on story really allows it to, like 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 every scene you know they really spend time with it in a in a way that i think is cool and i i think back to this movie and i can remember everything that happened in it because like three things happened in it so i feel like that is something to the movie's credit and something that makes it being the longest american animated film of all time not feel so uh uh arduous definitely talking about things that we like with the movie. I really want to talk more about uh, the spot as a villain. Um, So from what I know, the spot is like an old, is an old comic book villain who is generally seen as like a D tier villain, like very uncreative, very kind of like bottom of the barrel, very forgettable, uh, which helped in the trailers because when the trailers use the scenes where, Miles is treating the spot as a villain of the week. It helps us believe it. It helps us believe that just like at the beginning of the movie when they're fighting the Da Vinci-esque vulture in Gwen's universe, um, that the spot will be a monster of the week and not a serious threat. Now, there's definitely things to say about how he disappears in the second half of the movie, and it kind of feels like his threat isn't as threatening because they're dealing more with like the issue of Miles and the canon and all that rather than him destroying all the other worlds. But I think while he's there, he's a very effective villain because they're able to transition him from being like a kooky, not super threatening guy who's just there to impede Miles from, to pretty much hurt Miles' relationship with his parents more than like actually hurt anybody to making him a serious threat. Yeah. he. It, I really liked that. And I, I will say, 
I I would be absolutely astonished if they if this wasn't part of the inspiration for this. It really reminds me of Syndrome in the first Incredibles movie. How he starts off as this kid that Mr. Incredible kind of like tosses aside and is like, I don't need a sidekick. Like, I'm not going to take you seriously. And then he becomes this really serious supervillain threat. And I really love that kind of whole thing with I, I think that's a, a really cool way to create a villainous character and I would have liked to see more of the spot in the movie and also I would have liked to see more of his development into becoming more and more villainous because it feels like we go from him being relatively goofy to him suddenly being like I'm going to tear the whole universe apart like very quickly and there isn't a lot of, like, him slowly gaining... I would have loved to see him, like, becoming more and more powerful and, like, kind of getting drunk on that power and it further corrupting him and turning him into this, like, guy who wants to destroy... who has m- much more of, like, a world-ending aspiration. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great performance by Schwartzman, and I think that it's clearly set up in such a way as to make him a bigger part or, or a more ominous part of the, of the second movie. Um, but I, I agree with you that they could have had him be halfway there at the end of this movie, sort of a Kylo Ren thing, and then, you know, he, he, he gets bigger in the second movie rather than, like, having him start small, get big, disappear, he'll be back next time, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, I did really want to touch on this. I loved Miguel as a character, and I thought he was so interesting because he's he's clearly... I, I didn't see him as this, and maybe this is just my own perception, but he's clearly not a villain. He's, like, he's an antagonistic force in Miles' story, but he's not, like... I mean, his whole... He kind of is introduced to the movie with him yelling, I'm not a bad guy! And I don't think he is. And I think that the ways in which he mirrors Miles are really fascinating, in which Miles does lose parts of his world. He loses his uncle, but um, Miguel uses loses a whole universe. And you can really tell the extent to which he's pers- he's projecting his own failures and his own mistakes onto Miles. Yeah, I think you're touching on what could be a really cool sort of overarching parallel for the series where Miguel is is Jeff, he's the interdimensional cop and 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 Miles is sort of doing it Aaron style in a way which ties into the end of the movie where we see the Miles who follows in Aaron's footsteps, but I think I, I, I think, like, the it, it, it's pretty obvious that, like, the end goal of this canon stuff is to be, like, the canon is bullshit, um, which is which is good. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think there could be, like, some, some really interesting stuff being set up there with the parallel between Miles' dad being a cop and this, this father figure antagonist being uh, a multiverse cop. Yeah. I think one of the things I'm most interested for for the final movie is what they do with Jeff because um, in the first film they don't do too much to address the law enforcement thing and that was something I know people definitely criticize. I mean, the film came out not too long before the Black Lives Matter protests in um, 2020 and I think that 
fan in fan spaces a discussion was brought up of like what does it mean that this film has this uh like a black spider-man but his dad is a cop um and i think that this movie addresses it addresses the whole like cop versus vigilante child thing very well with gwen in that gwen's dad fucks up by choosing being a cop over his kid and then realizes it's a mistake and abandons being a cop i don't think they're going to do the exact same thing for jeff because that would just be rehashing the story with gwen and her dad but i'm very curious what they're going to go with there especially with the whole thing of like Jeff is about to die because he's becoming a police captain and uh, a police captain has to die in a Spider-Man's world. Yeah, I think it could be setting up for really interesting stuff. Another thing that I really like about this movie, and it's something that I, I noticed going all the way back to the first teaser, I like the way that they aged up Miles to, to, to still be a teenager, but be like an older teenager. And the way that Shameik Moore in his performance like went from doing a kid voice to, to doing like a like a pubescent voice, but but still like be being very. I think they they handle that really well. Yeah, I I really loved. Um, I will say one of the things that really stuck out to me, um, and that I think was successful in terms of like the they wanted all these unique animation styles is how different each of the spider people are and how differently they move from each other. Especially with with Gwen, I especially noticed this. She moves like a ballet dancer moves because she has ballet training in the first movie. She wears point shoes and she moves in the way that a person who has ballet training moves. Um, Mm -hmm. And Miles is a little bit more jerky and clumsy because he, well, in the first movie, isn't really figured out how to be a Spider-Man yet. He's kind of just mimicking Peter B. Parker before he starts developing his own style of movement. And then um, with Pav, I know he was inspired by Indian martial arts, which I think is really cool. And Hobie is also obviously like he's, he's a, he's a punk. He doesn't really move on the same beats as everyone else does. He Mm -hmm. kind of, he's kind of like a little bit off kilter in a way that's really fun to watch. And Miguel is like a big cat. And he closed stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I Hobie is the other cool thing about this movie from an animation point of view. I do think that there is a lot of stuff that is that is pretty much on par with the previous movie, but I think Gwen's world and 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 the Hobie, especially his like introductory montage, are like the the, the really stunning uh uh works of animation in this film. Yeah. My my dad loved my. I remember when when I was when my dad and I were driving back home from seeing the movie. He was saying that he loved Hobie so much. And now he wants to buy the Spider Punk comics and read them. And that Hobie was his favorite Spider person. And mm-hmm. Hobie is a fantastic character. I wish that he had been. I wish that they hadn't done that weird thing where he's like, "Never mind, I quit," and then have him have this apparently off-screen interaction with Captain Stacy where it's kind of implied that he's part of the reason why Captain Stacy quits the force and becomes a better dad to Gwen. And I wish that that had been on screen, frankly. A slight kind of, I, I don't like doing plot hole stuff. I do find it, first of all, quite coincidental that the spider got sent to another universe and happened to bite Miles Morales instead of like a random person. Um, but second of all, there's this scene where Miles is like 
invisible and spying on Gwen and seeing her kind of talk to the other spider people about how she shouldn't be seeing him and, 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 you know, getting sent off to Miguel's world. And it's like, what happened to Spidey sense? Shouldn't they be able to like sense that he's there? (laughs) Yeah. I, I I I will also say, Oh, I just want to quickly say for the miles thing. I mean, yes, it could have been any random person, but like, Aaron did bring him right next to the collider not long after the collider went off. So it's more like the spider happened to bite the first available person. And it's a coincidence that it was Miles because Aaron decided to bring him near the collider. But Sure, but I'm just saying like it is I mean clearly we see in the in the we see Donald Glover. It's clearly typical in the in the grand multiverse, and we know this from other other worlds, that like Miles Morales becomes Spider-Man. So the the fact that it happened to happen in this world is is I think a coincidence. I I, I will also say I um something that I thought was really cool is I I do think Miles gets some really great development in this movie and the scenes this is one of my I think one of my favorite scenes in the movie was the scene with him and Peter B Parker where Peter finds him before all the other spider people do and you can tell that peter is genuinely trying to talk to him and not just catch him for miguel and Mm. i really wish that there had been more of that interaction between peter b and miles because they are obviously so important to each other and and i also just think like i don't know i i think the fact that knowing all the stuff about how messy the behind the scenes was really makes me feel more solid in saying that the movie felt unfinished. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if unfinished is the word I'd use, but it is definitely you you see the mess on screen. <laughs> and I mean the fact that they they sent out a patched version, like that 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 that's the definition of unfinished. Yeah. Um but yeah, uh if if we're getting into overall thoughts, I I do think that there are so that there is some like groundbreaking stuff from an animation perspective in this movie. And I feel like in animation, like if you're raising the bar like that, you can forgive a lot of things in terms of story. I think of like, you know, Boy in the World and a lot of a lot of things that have like very simple stories but still are are, are seen as these great works because of what they do on the animation front. Um and and I see that here to a certain extent. I do think that if not for the Gwen scenes, those two scenes in Gwen's world I I would have a pretty negative overall opinion of the movie. <laughs> yeah, un- unfortunately, it, it it's it, it's frustrating. I I really loved I did really love the scenes with Gwen, and I I wish we had I I really wish we had just gotten more of what was happening with her because we just got so little. I mean, yeah, and I I think it makes sense that it's Miles' story, but like, w- why lead us in with Gwen? You know? Yeah, yeah. I do feel like there was so it was so Gwen heavy in the beginning that it wasn't really like balanced because there's almost like the Gwen scene was almost too long for the movie to not be a Gwen movie. But overall, I mean, all I can really say is that your criticisms have me thinking about the film in a different way. But when I saw, when I read your review, Rocky, of the movie, I quickly thought, oh, that might be interesting to talk about on a podcast episode with Rocky. And then I thought to myself, I am too biased about this movie to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until <laughs> you invite you invited me and I was like, okay, if Rocky's inviting me, then I got to talk about it. But sure. I I do truly feel in some ways that like my 
five years of excitement for this movie and my adoration of the first one has made it so I don't, especially because I haven't been able to see the film a second time, has made it so I don't have as solid of an opinion on it that isn't clouded by, like, excitement. Um, sure. So that's that's how I feel. But I definitely get and off- agree with a lot of your criticisms. Um, but I think not that, you know, Letterbox actually means everything. But right now, as far as I know, Across the Spider-Verse is still, like, the, the highest-ranked movie on on there they changed their algorithm it it's it it, by the old algorithm it still would be number one but it's number seven with their 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 new uh uh, oh yeah i I hadn't looked in a few days um but i definitely do think that this is a film that in a year or two from now especially after the third one comes out and we are able to assess everything as a whole that uh the film isn't going to be as perfectly acclaimed as it is right now um Mm. and like i i don't have i like i'm excited to see how people look back on this film because i do feel like this is a film that opinions are being clouded by hype um but i'm also interested because i i saw someone make a comparison to lord of the rings where they said uh People love the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but whose favorite movie is The Two Towers? <laughs> People almost always prefer the first or the last movie, and especially considering that the second and third were being built with a single story behind it. I'm just, we are living in a moment that, in the grand scheme of filmmaking, well, hopefully, assuming the third film doesn't get delayed too much, be very short, where we get to exist, where we can watch the first two movies and not have access to the third. So Mm -hmm. I'm very interested to see what people's opinions on the second specifically will be once we can look at all three as a a complete set. Yeah, Yeah, I do kind of think that, like, in the annals of history, this will probably go down as, like a valley in the series rather than a pink a peak. I think that's what I said in my review. Um, but, but, but I do think it's, I mean, there are a lot of questions about like how the third one will be made and when the third one will be made. Um, but I think they've teed themselves up so clearly, at least for the story of that one, that like, if they operate with the right ethos, you know, it, it'd be, it'd be hard to fuck it up. I mean, Fingers crossed, knock on wood, from your lips to God's ears, every, like, superstitious lucky thing I can say. I I will say, I think that I honestly have been thinking that my opinion will likely improve when I see the third film and when I'm able to watch them in succession, because a lot of my criticisms of how much the second movie feels like a first part will be, I won't be as bothered by it when I can see the second part. Mm. And I'm not just sort of like left hanging in limbo with all these unanswered questions. And hopefully my questions will get answers and then I'll, I'll feel more satisfied. Yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of pivotal Spider-Man twos in our lifetime and we'll see what, what the overall effect of this one is. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we wrap it up? I'm glad I got to talk about this with more people. Um, When I, when I saw, I'm glad we had you on, honestly, because I think it would we would have just yeah. been talking shit otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I saw the movie with my friend, I I am not the kind of person who goes to a movie by myself. Um, I don't know if I ever have, 
partially as a kid, it was, you know, uh, uh, my parents took me or me and my brother had a similar interest in movies. When we got out of the theater, we spent an hour just talking about how we felt about it, talking about our theories about stuff for a solid hour before we even thought like, oh, we have to figure out how we're getting home because neither of us have a car with us. Um, And I think that while there are criticisms to this movie, I think something that proves how strong it is and how strong the first one is, is that there is so much to say about it. It's not just, this was bad. Oh, well, that's a shame. It's so, there is so much to say about it. Yeah, a uh, friend of the show, Emily, described a very similar experience with uh, with with his sibling, where they walked out and just talked about all kinds of theories for like an hour, um, which I think is a similar thing that can be said about Everything Ever All at Once, which um, some of my criticisms of that movie are similar to my criticisms of this movie. Some of them are very different. Um, I, 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 Everything Everywhere is, I, I like it more, but, um, you know, it, I think there's something really to be said about movies that are really like, engaging people and getting people not just seeing them but talking about them and sort of keeping them in their mind and that again i think one of the things that this movie that I, I i that i praise this movie for is that because it is so light on story it feels like the 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 beats of it feel feel really totemic they feel like you know they're they're going to stick with me in a way that like i'm sure they're i'm sure like 80 percent of what happens in into the spider verse has escaped me since i last saw it because there's just so much shit going on um yeah. you know there, there's something to be said for the way that this movie handles it yeah i i will say for all my criticisms of this movie and I, I honestly, I, there's probably more that I could say about my criticisms of it. It is an incredibly engaging movie. When I was mm. watching it, I was watching it um, at, at a drive-in where it was projected onto the side of a building and the video quality was not great. But I, and I was sitting there and I, I will say I don't have the, the best attention span in the world. I did not look away for basically the entire movie. And... I wanted to keep watching and I wanted to get answers. So to me, that makes me feel like I feel overall more positive than more negative because this movie made me care about it. And to me, that's the mark of something that I'm going to enjoy. Yeah, I I do think I'm going to probably knock it down half a star on Letterboxd. But, uh, you know, uh, there there are things that I, 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 I come out of this... Uh, my, my overall opinion has, has gone down slightly, but I, I, I do come back to the things that I liked about it. And I think more so than Spider-Man No Way Home, which was kind of a similar experience where I walked out like I had criticism with that, but it was a really fun time in the theater. Th- that movie just kept getting worse in my mind. I think, I, I think, you know, this movie has its merits and they're going to stay merits. But yeah, I'm glad we we're putting it out there because again, there is so much just just overwhelming kind of praise for this movie and adulation and i think that makes sense when when something like this there's the adulating throngs as like as we said in the last beatles episode but like the it, it makes sense that that this is a movie that people are excited about and you know at some point we're gonna have to start talking about these things so we're planning the first flag here at pulp friction thank you guys so much for joining me <laughs> Um, and thank you to everyone who has been listening. Uh, if you'd like the show, you can, uh, like or rate or follow wherever you're listening to it. Um, you can leave a comment if you hate what we're saying, um, but you do have to be a paid subscriber on Substack to do that. 
Uh, and um, yeah, just just let people know you like the show. That's one of the best things you can do. I don't know what we'll be doing next week. Perhaps we'll be returning to the Twilight Saga, which I've said at like the past three episodes in a row. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it'll be a good time. I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary.